but I was going to give a PSA for the kids. Um, I wanted to say that doing drugs is not cool. Um, you're not cool for doing drugs. It's how you do the drugs that makes you cool. Are you going to a concert and getting high and dancing with glow sticks? Are you bringing all your friends out, making sure everyone is having a good time? Everyone is making it. Everyone's getting drunk. We're going to include alcohol as a drug, right? What are you doing with the drugs? Are you having fun? Because you just doing drugs doesn't make you cool. So with that being said, if you replace drugs with politics, well, then you kind of got the answer to what we're really talking about here. I'll start off with a, a just a headline of an article that, that was in the news about um, Joe Biden's cabinet is going to reflect, um, I guess, the um, America, you know, the diversity of the America. diversity of America. Yeah. And what I was thinking is. So it's going to no, be 75 percent white and. Uh, no, that's not even what's important. It's going to be 75 percent Republican. I can tell it's you not that. A, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but despite that. It's not going to reflect the diversity of America because all of them are making mid hundreds of thousands. Of course. Right. Of course. Boom. Well, that's just their salary. Most of yeah. these people have wealth. Yeah. So that's just no, you're not reflecting the diversity of America whatsoever. And, it, and you could say there are some places where you people are just going to be more successful financially who are going to be the most effective at a certain job. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the Fed, of course, people in finance are going to make a lot of money who are the most effective at, you know, financial policy. Mm. But at the same time, if you're talking about a labor secretary, that doesn't have to be a rich person. No. Housing and urban development, that doesn't have to be a rich person. There are places where- Secretary of education definitely doesn't need to be a rich person. In fact, it shouldn't be a rich person. Well, it does need to be a rich person if- Well, um, it needs to be a rich person if- If this is going to continue. Right. If what's going to continue? The way things are. I mean, the status quo, whatever you want to call it. I but mean. that, I mean, that's that's the point of why it's not diverse, mm-hmm. because the status quo, the people who have power are not diverse. Indeed, indeed. So if you're maintaining these current power dynamics, you're anti-diversity. Yeah, but the thing is, though, I think the way that people understand diversity, typically it includes what? <clears throat> Excuse me, gender, sexuality, so-called race. Mm-hmm. Um, disability. Disability, maybe ethnicity, if mm-hmm. we want to get really... Right. Go really far with it. Yeah. Something else, inevitably, I'm forgetting. Um, all kinds of stuff. Certainly doesn't include class, though. Because, right. Because you can change your class, like you can change your underwear, and that's why you're free, but you can't change your so-called race. Well, but it, it also, I mean, this also gets to the heart of, you know, we often talk about, like, um, how is class different than race, right? Or how is, how is class different from other um sort of ascriptive identity types or categories. Mm-hmm. 
And one thing is you think about it like a, a thought experiment, right? If you are born to say a black father and a white mother, mm-hmm. you are considered biracial. But if you are born to a rich mother and a poor father, you're not considered by class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't factor into like mm-hmm. what you are. Um, although you might have an interesting upbringing as a result of that, if your parents are separated or whatever, and you move back and forth between mm-hmm. the two, but it's not a part of your identity in that way. Yeah. My first thought is if you're the child of a, of a rich father and a poor mother, actually you're the child of two divorced, uh, two divorcees. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, well, whatever. Well, yeah, I've, class, I feel like, is the one of the biggest obstacles for any healthy relationship. Class differences are almost impossible to overcome. Yeah. In my experience, just having dated women. Who Shout are, out to a friend who has a class theory of dating. Yeah? No, I think that's she totally She says right. it's impossible. I, I, Long run impossible. I think that's Do you believe right. that that is a dynamic? I, I, I would reckon to say that if you're a rich man, you can date a poor woman and be happy. For how long? Forever. You can easily, it's a I'm lot, not, it's a lot easier to bring a poor person into a rich person's culture than it is to bring a rich person right. to a poor okay, person's culture. So just well, to be clear, but, I'm not advocating anything here. I'm just saying it seems like yeah. there are problems generally among people. I'm not yeah. saying like- Well, I mean, it seems to me is, is like, of course it's pot. It's not like, I wouldn't say it's impossible. Um, the question is sort of like, um, you know, having grown up poor, working class, what have you. Like my, um, my interests, so-called, like my morals, my attitudes towards certain things are very different than someone who maybe grew up middle class or upper class. And those are probably going to bleed into the ways that we think about politics, the way we think about, um, interpersonal relationships, authority. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm someone who I can't stand. I have a hard time with authority. I grew up with parents mm-hmm. who both hated authority figures. And, it, and, and so like, if I were to sort of maybe be, well, actually I am in a relationship with someone who does respect authority, but that's a, you know, she comes from like a military family, you know, she wasn't like wealthy or anything. That's where I got it from. But that is, say that. but that is an interesting thing. That is a point of contention oftentimes. I mean, not to get like too personal, like that's something we often butt heads about where her response to something comes from, having grown up in a family where you're expected to kind of follow orders, you know, and I've come from a family where I'm just like, fuck you. I'm not going to do what you tell me. I'm not going to do what you tell me, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's like, mm-hmm. she doesn't understand that. And I don't always understand mm-hmm. her. And I could definitely see that having that become sort of an outgrowth of like a, a coming from different class backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this is interesting because we were just talking about, you know, different left organizations that we're in and um, how we clash. Cause I come from a military background too. All of, both of my brothers are army. I did air force ROTC, uh, for three years, um, was supposed to be an officer. Um, and I have a general respect for not necessarily authority. I do respect authority when it's effective. Um, and I respect order. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what you're saying, the whole fuck you, I won't do what you tell me type of thing. <laughs> I wonder can that go to a place where it becomes negative in sure. the way you deal with your day-to-day life or the way you uh, relate to politics? Because that's kind of the clash I'm having with left organizations at the moment is that they have no general uh, respect for order. They have no respect for actually creating a plan and executing that plan 
And there are some people who are going to be more effective than others at executing that plan. And you defer to them that there's a certain point where collective endeavor becomes a hindrance. So I agree. A collective nature of doing everything, not necessarily democracy, because there are ways to make that orderly that they don't even want to to do. No, no. Um, So and I think that's because they I mean, we'll get into this, but I think that's because a lot of contemporary left psychology isn't and we should not. We should. So the guiltiest pleasure of thinking people is to overindulge in psychology. So we have to be careful. Right, right, right. But I think. Um, problem with leftist psychology is that you know it has a Christian confessional character. You get up there, you bear witness, you lay yeah. your cards on the table, you state your beliefs, and you know, and at the end of the day, <clears throat> what's important is that you tried and showed that you were a good person. It's not about succeeding and uh, obtaining the objective. So that seems to be the distinction there. Like what you're saying is. I mean, someone could say that what you're saying, Thaddeus, is conservative in a sense. I would say it's like conservative in a respectable way. It's not this sort of like preserve the status quo thing. It's like we have hierarchies, but they're subordinated to obtaining an objective, and it's all measured in light of being effective. Right. And someone might say that's conservative. If they want to, then whatever. I don't have a problem with that. Um, But the distinction there is that you're not talking about laying your conscience on the public uh, spectacle, Mm -hmm. the the what do you call it, in the public sphere, displaying it. Yeah. You're talking about like, okay, we're all here for a reason. What's your reason? My reason is to try to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think the frustration you run up against is that a lot of American leftists, that's not what they're in it for. Yeah. Well, I think there's two there's two points here that, two questions maybe that are worth kind of considering. The first question is uh, the question of hierarchy. So for a lot mm-hmm. of people on the left, all hierarchy is bad and stop. Right. And so when mm. it comes to that collective kind of thing and deferring to someone, it's like, well, you're just reinscribing power dynamics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so then, you know, you never really kind of get anything going because it's just this kind of endless battle and this kind of endless parsing out of, of power imbalances and et cetera, et cetera. And like, I don't think that all power imbalances are de facto bad or Mm. What have you. And the other question, and this kind of gets to your part about like the sort of confessional thing is that, and maybe not to get, you know, too far into leftist psychology, but is like, what is the status of like the victim, right? Mm. The left loves a victim. And one of the things about, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there's a sort of um, fetishization of like an authentic experience. Like a mm-hmm. good leftist is someone who has overcome hardships. A bad leftist is someone who's had something. Trust fund kid. A trust fund kid. Right. Right. And so it. Never mind that Lenin was a noble and that Marx was bourgeois. Of so course. Forth. Of course. But those are the, you know, and, and so then the question is sort of like, what are the problems that I think emerge from that maybe reaction to, you know, that kind of mindset, you know? Cause I feel like there's a, a it, that also can become a kind of hindrance, right? Like the sort of privilege. Oh, you of, mean the liability of, of the sort of left mentality with respect to it? You know, it inhibits it from obtaining its own goals because, objectives. yeah. Well, yeah. If, if, if assuming that the plan is to obtain those objectives, but if the plan is just to sort of 
do some grand romantic spectacle where you sort of throw yourself into the uh, flaming abyss for the gods to see then well i also think it's 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 not even that deep it's just it's easy um so I, i i think back to um uh desegregation and desegregation in the south why it was easier to desegregate in the south than it was to desegregate in the north because in the south you had laws on the books um and it was an identity issue black people do not have access to this because of virtue of their identity the color of their skin being black um and then in the north the problem so, so in the South, once you remove the barriers to that identity, you remove a lot of the problems to access to, you know, uh, the economic program of the South. Uh, not, ne- not necessarily, but you have a victory in removing those barriers based on identity. But in the North, you didn't have necessarily those barriers based on law. Mm-hmm. It wasn't based on identity. It was based on economic status. Right. Black yeah. people are poor. Right. And we're not going to help them get out of poverty, which means they're going to remain in ghettos. And when King tried to fight against that, mm-hmm. that took work like uni- unionizing or fighting with the, the sanitation workers union. Right. Mm-hmm. That took mm-hmm. more work. And he called it de facto racism mm-hmm. or de facto mm-hmm. segregation. And he didn't succeed. He didn't succeed. And I think looking at the leftist identity, why they latch on to these identity issues is because. It's easy. It is the fetishization of oppression because that has power. But it's also that you can get victories on identity because Mm -hmm. they're easy and they cost people nothing. They can actually be a benefit. Symbolic victories. They're they're not just symbolic. Right. Because psychologically they, they they push you towards. You know, the more of these victories you have, the more you're going to push yourself towards getting the economic victories later. But at the same time, um, you know, if if that's that's cheap, if all you're worried about is your identity as a black person, Mexican person or Hispanic person or Mm -hmm. woman, gay, lesbian, whatever, if that is what your politics is wrapped around, you're cheap. You are cheap. What you should be asking them for is money. I want your fucking money. I want (laughs) the means of production. Mm -hmm. We have socialized production for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I want your capital because guess what? That is going to um, shrink the differences necessarily between all of those other identities. Mm -hmm. And it's going to start marginalizing them if you get parity in, you know, capital. Mm -hmm. But as long as we, since it's easier to focus on identity issues, we do that and mm-hmm. we remain cheap. That's kind of the issue I have with identity. It, it seems like it can, it becomes very toxic on the left because, mm-hmm. you know. It, so you're saying it's like junk food, you know, you eat a couple pounds of it. It's never going to satisfy you, but it tastes good. You keep doing it. You could have just eaten a portion of carrots and protein and then you would have gotten some, is this what you're saying? Like. It, there's a danger there is it's seductive. You can keep making these sort of remedial gains that don't give you the ultimate conclusion because that's much harder and more likely that you'll fail at or. Right. And you're not going to find acceptance in the fe- in the spheres that um, uh, promote these things. Like we don't have ownership of the media mm-hmm. that pumps out, you know, you know, what's important to everybody 
Mm-hmm. Like um, people look at, you know, network TV if you're older. They look at YouTube if you're younger. Whatever you're getting your media from, mm-hmm. you don't control it. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot easier for them to push identity too because it's cheaper. And then on the flip side, yeah, have to pay. you get acceptance from them mm-hmm. based on fighting for these identity issues mm-hmm. like Kaepernick and Nike. Yeah, let's make a few ads. That's easy. Now he's allied with Nike. Mm-hmm. Did they do anything? No, mm-hmm. it's easy. But at the same time, you feel accepted because, yeah, now I've got Nike on my side, mm-hmm. but they didn't do anything. It's like sports. You know, when the Browns win, Adam says, we won. <laughs> I don't mean to throw you under the bus, but that's <laughs> no, it's fine. I, the I'm nationalist happy to. character of sports. It's that's like, right. we won. It's like, no, you didn't. I, I think um, when we're talking about identity, um, that's kind of why I see it as a negative. And I get we can go into more in depth of what. You know, I think it would be helpful for us to talk about our individual identities, mm-hmm, politically mm-hmm. and socially, and then, you know. Well, it'd be good also to, like, parse the note concept of identity. One sure. thing, though, I, I there were a couple things you said I want to pick on, pick up on, um, and um, not pick on, but we want to go towards political identity and how the left turns politics and class into identity, sort of, as it's in general. Uh, mm-hmm left so-called. But first, I want to ask you something. So you were saying that, so in the North, you have two things. First one is, you're saying in the North, there was de facto racism. And that, am I, do I have you right? That's a way of saying, basically, like, we don't have an explicit legal, explicit legal code that writes in stone, human beings with a property, having black skin are... So if you're a human being and you have a property, black skin then you're debarred from XYZ legal entitlements. Right. So you don't have that explicitly on the books. You have an economic system, which just right. and a social keeps system, people down. Like white flight, all that type of sure. thing. Sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. So gotcha. <laughs> so then the question is, so still on the first point, the question is, do you think that's what lends the left its sort of LARPing character? Because you said in the South, it was a real fight against the laws in a way that it wasn't in the North because they were never laws. So, so ending segregation in the South was an explicit fight. Yes. Right. And so then when, you know, so the Northerner progressives went down there to try to help out or whatever, and then we're going to come up, come back up here and do it up here, but it's not the same fight because it's not on the books. It's not the laws. And so, so you can't fight the same fight the same way. You have to do it differently. And for Northern let's say, white, liberal, affluent PMC progressives, that's going to mean tackling the economic system. So either you go down that path or you just repeat the, repeat the tropes and scenes and spectacles of the Southern fight against the law in the North, where, of course, it's pointless because those laws aren't there. It's well, not ex- just that. You don't... So the fight in the South, they had a fight to end segregation mm-hmm. legally. They win that fight. Now the fight becomes a fight in all of America to economically end segregation, right? That that means that means that, that is a different fight, like you're saying. And for the liberal, um, they don't want to. I don't know if they necessarily don't want to engage in it because of their proximity to the economic system, meaning they'd have to lose something more than that. Um, Basically, they just keep on looking to have that victory based on, you know, the legal aspect. Yeah, they're of trying it. to fight the Southern fight in the North. So, and of course, they, it's not to be had. So they just end up 
acting. Well, it is to play be. acting. That's the thing, right? The legal, so the, the legal aspect of it is still there's still parts of it to be had. That okay. means you have an emphasis on things like, you know, immigration. You have an emphasis on things like gay rights. Then transition to that, you have. Okay, but it's a transition, though. It's not the same fight. It's not the same fight, but it is a fight against the law. That's mm. why you see all of this, uh, you know, people focusing on like the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and how liberal justice is, liberal justices and conservative justice. And you mm-hmm. see this on conservative and the liberal side. You see that focus going towards the courts mm-hmm. because the conservatives recognize this is the only place that these liberals actually want to win. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're going to take over the courts mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the liberals never expanded the fight to a place where they could be unpredictable to conservatives. Mm -hmm. They never wanted to expand it to economics and thus they became predictable and they stopped winning. Right. So you can get stuff like don't ask, don't tell all of these are great victories, but they're never going to get you what you ultimately want. If you want some type of parody, some type of, I guess, um, you know, economic safety net, social democracy, mm-hmm. if that's the limits of your imagination. You're never going to get socialism for that matter if you can't get social democracy. Well, maybe they don't want it, but I mean, you could imagine that a liberal is a hysteric and the worst possible scenario for a hysteric is to get what they want because then it's like, oh my God, there it is. No, no, I can't keep desiring it forever and ever. I, I think it's not even that. I don't think it's that deep. I think you just get the likes because you keep on fighting the identity issues. You keep on fighting the law which you don't even have control of without the realization that you can change the law instead of fighting the law. Um, and you keep on going about that fight because every time you win, you get an accolade, right? Mm-hmm. You get a like, and now you got it in social media, more likes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Um, I support the flag. I get a like, mm-hmm. you know, I support kneeling. Oh, I God. get a like, Oh God! It's and a it's just, we opened up talking about drugs. Aren't cool. That shit doesn't make you cool, man. That's that's fucking drugs. You're mm-hmm. going to just keep on doing them. You're going to become addicted to that shit you and you're going to suck for the rest of your life. That's what's going to happen to you. But if you decide to take on the fact that what we're talking about is access to markets, then that I, that class identity is going to lead you down different paths than having a social identity being the, the, the bedrock of your fight. Mm-hmm. Both are worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But one is going to pay, di- they're going to pay different dividends. Mm-hmm. That's all. And, and what we're clashing on is, what do you want? Mm-hmm. That's that's the question. Well, the hysteric can't articulate what it wants. I'm committed to the view that liberals are hysterics, but whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, you can have it if only you can articulate what it is. That's a horrifying situation, right? Yeah. But real quick, so, so what I'm intuiting when you say this, when you said that was this. It's like, tell me if this is right. So it's one of those situations. You remember that one time we did that one thing way back in the day? That was a lot of fun, right? Let's do that again and again and again and again and again. Yeah. Even if the conditions for it no longer obtain, when all you got to hammer, everything looks like a nail. So we'll just do it again and again and we'll make everything we encounter into that old thing and we'll just keep doing it even though it's not the appropriate fight for the, for the opponent that we mm-hmm. happen to meet in the world. That's what I'm getting. And that seems to be the sort of left progressive maybe Northern thing in the States. I don't know. Maybe I'm mischaracterizing it. I don't think you are. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. So is class and identity. So moving towards political identity, I have the feeling 
that the left makes everything an identity. So yeah. we should ask whether class and politics are an identity and say what that means. Like, what is an identity? Like, how do you understand that? Because it's a concept. Right. I mean, it's not like those donuts on the counter in the kitchen. It's, it's a notion. It, no? What do you mean? Well, so it's, it's tricky, right? Because on the one hand, I want to say class is relational. Right. Of course, like other identities are also relational and a kind of uh, Hegelian dialectic, male, female, et cetera, et cetera. Like one. Oh, you need a contrast case for one definition. necessary. You kind of need the other in order to define oneself. Mm. But with class, it's relational in the sense that if we were to, if the rich were to eliminate all of the poor, right, suddenly they wouldn't be rich anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. So Does you that have make a sense? kind of mutual dependence between these things. Right. And so, like, Racial categories, gender categories, conceptually speaking, of course, they are relational. Right. But let me. So, so race is, is a hard one because race is very similar to class because where sure. race was generated is in order to facilitate class dynamics, right? So, right, right. You have um, Christendom. Christendom starts to uh, colonialize and they say, okay, um, we want our countrymen to have access to the economy and we're going to do this by enslaving other people. Mm-hmm. And the closer you are to these slaves, the more we're going to bar you from access to the economy so that we can keep this system closed and we can regulate it that way. So when you're talking about race, you are talking about a dynamic that started out pretty relational based right. on, you know, um, right. the more access you have to... Um, the economic system, the less colored you are. Right. But I think that over time it became fixed. Yes. That's what uh, I That's mean. what I would have So it wasn't yeah. fixed from the beginning. It, it was wasn't just, fixed from the beginning. It's a historical accident like that be- became necessary. Groups of people become white in scare quotes right. through economic developments. Right. Or yes. and they're therefore But at this point at this point in history, these are fixed categories. So much so that at we at any tr- given point, let's say. Well, right, but it's so much so that now we try to uh, Except like ex- in India, yeah. Well, but I mean, right now, now we try to export our race, our understanding of race relations in America to other countries, which is totally oftentimes, which doesn't quite work, right? Because um, it's a local thing here, and we just think that we're God's chosen cosmopolitans, and our categories can apply to everything. Um, I want to try to so get back to what you're saying, though. Is this what you're trying to say? Maybe when you said before. Um, they're all relational because they're all defined in relation to other things, sure. whether identity, gender, class, blah, blah. Yeah. But the difference between them, there's a difference between them with respect to like how relational they are to what degree. In the case of class, we're not talking about individual entities um, that we understand conceptually with distinctions. We're talking about a social system of self-reproduction. Right. Right. So, I mean, maybe gender plays into that because biological reproduction can is an important piece of this self-reproduction of the social system, mm-hmm. like classes. Right. But certainly, I don't think, well, okay, the other identities play a role there, but less, say, than class because class is the inequality fundamental to the self-reproduction of the capitalist society system we live in. So, so that sort of distinguishes class from the other identities. Is yeah. that that's what you mean? And I think historically, the other identities, even if they function like that in the pla- in the past, like the woman being the homemaker, mm-hmm. capitalism has um, dissolved mm-hmm. all of those distinctions mm-hmm. in order to find more, uh, what is it, the reserve labor army. Mm-hmm. 
So surplus population. Yeah. yeah. In order for more people to be part of the labor force, they've dissolved a lot of those distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way that they're maintained that we're seeing right now is economically, which mm-hmm. does make if class is the one that endures after all of this, then it it is essentially different mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm obsessing a little bit. I want to make sure you tell me if, if I'm well, getting you right, because you're saying there's an epistemic relational distinction between different genders, different races, different um, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But there's an ontic or ontological or whatever relation between different classes because yes. they p- play different roles in the present system. Yes. And and I also, I think that, you know, w- what I would say too is sometimes you can get into the, there's some grammatical confusion. I mean, I hate to like bring Wittgenstein into this. Well, or I just brought epistemic. Right. And but so like the idea of like um, thinking about identity as something that you are, right? Right. I am white. I am male. Well, I am working class, mm-hmm. right? You can grammatically, those can all sound the same. But the difference is that, like, um, you know, my maleness and my whiteness mm-hmm. are, in, are in some sense more um, fundamental uh, than my classness. Why? I mean, th- I'm getting back to that example I, I talked about earlier. Like, if my, my father was black, I'd be biracial. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But if my father were rich, I wouldn't be by class. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me there's a distinction there. That's like where I feel like that's where the real distinction kind of comes out. And I, that's what I'm trying to get at when I try to, when I'm saying that like my whiteness and my maleness is in some sense more fundamental. I mean, I don't believe it's actually fundamental, but I mean, in the way that we think about identity, we think it's like fixed to me as like a. So, so common sense as a property. It's a, it's regards a fixed, them as though it's more. It's, fi- it's a fixed property of my person. Whereas my classness is something that I can change by getting a better job or something. That's what people think, even though everyone can't right. move up the ladder right. that's at the, the same con- time. That's the kind of conception of them. That's like how we think of them. So that's the sort of popular awareness, which is obviously false, right? I mean, like we can't all, like people say social mobility can change your class, but any given, any given members of 10% of society can change their position, but everyone can't climb the ladder. Someone's going to be on the bottom. Right. And, and, you know, and it's interesting because even though you want to say gender is a construct, race is a construct, well, then you get into the sort of, um, the transgender, transracial Mm -hmm. debates where it's like acceptable to identify, um, as a gender, um, that one is not assigned at birth via their sex, Mm -hmm. but it's not acceptable to identify um, as a different race than one is. Sort what of if given. I'm poor and I identify as rich? Right. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> well, I feel like most Americans do, don't they? Well, does they, that Steinbeck? I feel quote? like most people identify as middle class. Oh, they, sure. They, sure. they okay. conceive of themselves as middle class. I think more people identify as not poor. Right. I think that's what middle class means. I'm yeah. normal. I'm in the middle. Yeah. Um, but with the distinction between um, transracial and transgender, um, I'm I, I'm on the side that is in favor of transracial, be as be whatever race you want to fucking be. But I think <laughs> um, what that what that really is, I, I think what it really is, is is people talking about um like cultural capital. Yeah, I think that's an old term. Um, but what I mean by cultural capital is uh certain what we call cultures, races, however you want to call it. I would say culture is a better way to put it because. 
that's a more accurate term. I, I can, if you tell me what culture you're from, I can learn a lot more about you than if you tell me you're black, white, or brown. And that by culture, you mean like geographical region, historical, geographical, yes, geographical, yeah. historical context, right? Because mm-hmm. how I put blackness is in America, in America mm-hmm. is right. how slavery exists in context with the modern society, the historical legacy of slavery, right. how that manifests in the current society. Right. That's what makes me, that's what makes when they talk about black people not being a monolith, that is the one thing that connects all black people in America. Mm-hmm. Even if mm-hmm. you're not the descendant of a slave, mm-hmm. you still exist within that legacy because mm-hmm. like you said, because of the phenotype that you're born with, mm-hmm. those thing, those parts of society are ascribed to you mm-hmm. no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I was to make enough money, I could be rich. But no matter how much money I make, mm-hmm. I'm still not going to get away from the legacy of slavery mm-hmm. in the American context. It's 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 just not going to happen. And and I think I, well actually actually to get back to uh the headline that Thaddeus mentioned earlier, you know, this sort of diverse quote unquote cabinet, like you know, we're fine um you know, we we encourage uh closing the racial wealth gap, but we don't exactly encourage uh you know, actually lifting everyone out of poverty. No, we encourage that everyone uh, work as hard as they can to lift themselves up. And then those who do, congratulations. And those who don't, well, you can console yourself with the fact that you tried and that you live in the best system in the history of humanity, even though it sucks for you. So, I mean, I think what Daddy's was saying really brings out the difference between class as 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 a somehow more relational kind of category than the others, the way you were ta- saying, because, you know, thank you. The, um, so the, the Biden cabinet, I mean, they would probably say, well, you know, you can change your class. You can't change your race. You can't change your, mm-hmm. I mean, you can change your gender these days. It's, it's possible. Um, um, but the thing is individuals can change their class. Classes can't change their social economic destiny, right? Their fate, where they end up, and so I think from the standpoint of the sort well, of they, ruling, they can't change their position in in the system of social relations right. unless the system of social relations completely change, right? So, so uh, yeah, I think that's 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 where the uh, anglophone, right? It's probably not different in Germany or France or elsewhere. I don't know uh, beyond the horizon of European. I, I can't really say, but. Um, where the Anglophone liberal, at least for sure, doesn't want to go is beyond regarding social beings as atomistic individuals. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at right. a whole class, you obviously, the class can't change its class. Yeah. You can change your class. Yeah. At the cost of all the suckers who are going to lose in the struggle for competition. But, I mean, I mean, when I think of it, going way back to the initial question, I want to just... It's really worth trying to define this because it gets thrown around and I often think that if a person can't define what they're saying, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, by identity, I understand. Tell me if I'm wrong, please. Uh, Or I'd be happy to hear you tear me apart like a pack of wolves. Um, By identity, I understand a relation between two entities, at least, more than two. Mm-hmm. usually, which are 
identical in some respect. Identical. So identity is a relation, mm-hmm. but it's it's a relation between two entities which are the same in some limited respect. Obviously, they're not numerically identical, or they wouldn't be two entities. So that means they have other aspects which aren't identical. Mm-hmm. So they have other aspects which are different, but they have at least one which are the same. And so identity is that relation. That's totally different, I think, from the way it gets thrown around. Identity is usually taken to mean, you know, that thisness, this mystical je ne sais quoi that makes you your isolated, it makes you an isolated individual, specific, concrete, particular, unlike everyone else. What makes you you, right? Mm-hmm. So I think with that kind of idea, I, 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 so my, what identity is to me is it is personal, right? So identity is personal in a respect, but it, it's basically your um, social historical, I guess, um, how do I put it? Journey in life, your social historical background, your history. It's who you are. How it manifests in society, hmm. right? And how society around and the society around the individual interacts with the individual. That's what generates somebody's identity. Mm. Um, and kind of going back something. So identity is biography. For, is what yes. You're identity is biography. Um, and that biography, how it interacts with society at large. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know why we don't allow people to be transracial. I think, um, I don't really believe in race as a concept because it's it's dictated off of Klein and region, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, well, certainly it's a concept. You mean you don't think it's like an independently existing like thing? No. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I don't think it's a fundamental truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think when people talk about someone being transracial and cultural capital, I think we're talking in, in economics also – when you're talking about changing your class economically, you're talking about acquiring more capital, right? How much access to capital do you have dictates where you are um, uh, in, as far as your economic class. Um, but when you're talking about culture, it's that interaction with history and with the experiences of that culture. You know, mm-hmm. different cultures. If I go to India, mm-hmm. I'm never going to become Indian because I don't have a historical connection to um, the foods that they eat, the dances they do, the spices that they have mm-hmm. um, and the contours of their face. Um, so all of those things interact with the culture that I'll never have only not because of virtue of, you know, um, you know, I because I'm not. Indian necessarily. Mm. It's because I wasn't born there. I'm not Indian because I am not a part of that culture. I don't have those cultural experiences. So what you're saying is you don't, you haven't had that sort of temporally extended uh, series of encounters, experiences, and so forth that made you what you are in the sense of biography. Right. And I never will. And you can't, in fact. And I can't. And also, let's say I was born in India mm. and I'm, I'm, I'm African-American. Mm-hmm. I come from two African-American presidents and I'm born in India. I'm still not Indian because I don't have that historical connection. I don't have the lineage that gives me that um, ancestral connection mm-hmm. to being Indian. Some people think Barack Obama is not American because of where he was born. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's an argument that people make off of culture. Sure. And I think it's it's true. 
in a sense. Sure. But you can't go back and have those experiences you didn't have. You're, and you definitely right. cannot go back and bring back the dead to have those experiences and teach you those experiences. It's that lost. They and, and also, I think. But you think, but but you think though that the barrier, the racial barrier, is not something that can't be broken down. I don't think it should be real. I don't think what I mean well, is, is that a is order the case. Of question, then. No, I, that is the case, but I don't think it. Let's yeah, I don't think it has to be the case. Mm. I think when you really break it down, I am more similar to you two guys, mm-hmm. two white guys who came from the Midwest, Ohio. Even mm-hmm. though I'm from Illinois, mm-hmm. I'm more similar to you guys culturally mm-hmm. than I am to black guy who grew mm-hmm. up on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Just. By virtue of those same cultural factors Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the history that we're brought up in. Mm -hmm. There is a history to Mm -hmm. the Midwest that us three are a part of, Mm -hmm. that someone from the West Coast is not a part of. And that's that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I I would see I'm far more similar to you than I am to some guy who grew up in Germany where my ancestors are from. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, well, that's just by virtue of the fact that we both grew up in America. We grew up in the Midwest. We have, you know. You share these things in your biography. That that's I think the inherent limitation of the of um the way identity is conceived of. Yeah. Namely, like Well well It's too abstract. It's too abstract. Because I mean, Daddy's is supposed to have more in common with some guy from the West Coast because he shares a property with him in respect to right. which he, they're identical. Right. No. Well and that and I think that's that's something that I've been wanting I was just kind of thinking about as you guys were talking, which is that like, you know, the thing about identity identity categories, descriptive identities. Like, even though they are relational, like you were saying, mm-hmm. like I can point to whiteness, right? Yeah, that, yeah. There's a biological component that sort of um, we understand as well, whiteness, Well, no, let's right? not even say biological. There's a phenotype. A, yeah, a something that manifests in It is biological, experience. but it's just a phenotype. Right. Or, you know, gender, you know, there are, there are like ways like- But there are also biological know, things that we can't- Touch, t- smell, taste, see, hear. It's the fi- it, it, it's apparent to the five senses, so it's easy. Is what you're saying, right? right. You can like, point your finger at but it. But like, how do I point to poor, or how do I point to um, rich? Like, you can kind of do that. You can kind of do it in a similar way, but it, it's it's never quite adequate. And I think that this actually explains why, for so long, there's been these attempts to naturalize class mm-hmm. via race. Mm. Um, well, that's old via, via whatever, where you can like, um, you can bring class into a kind of biological Mm -hmm. or physio, you know, physiognomy or, or whatever in order to kind of contain it. Right. People born low, it's their destiny to suffer. This way you can point to it. Right. You know, in, in the way that you can't normally point to just like, yeah, I mean the simplicity of it, the crudeness of it probably lends it's, is probably why it's. Such a prevalent theory, it's just so easy to believe, I guess, because you can point one finger at one entity, at one aspect of one entity, and you say, look, that's what I'm talking about. Whereas if you talk about class, you have to talk about a cluster of properties, mm-hmm. and you need some kind of <laughs> relational theory, and by then the person's already sort of daydreaming about sex or whatever people think about. And then you've lost your audience, and then suddenly, you know, it's time for lunch, and then the conversation never gets finished. Um, it's more difficult. Right. I mean, it's interesting. The question of passing, right, yeah. is really interesting because, like, you know, obviously in the, throughout the 20th century, 19th, 20th century, um, you know, I mean, there's a number of great novels about blacks trying to pass as white, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and and now you can kind of understand w- with the way that class relations work and the way in which class often gets expressed through various cultural signifiers. Mm-hmm. One can pass as middle class, even though you're actually poor by wearing nice clothes or whatever. Or passes, well, or, you know, the way they, the sort of hipster aesthetic right. appropriates uh, working class. Working class aesthetic. Roll up your denim jeans. And right, stuff like that. right, right, right. Um, and that that to me is really, that's a fascinating, it's a fascinating ph- uh, a phenomenon um, that I think often leads to a lot of confusion um, and well, a lot of problems. Well, what do you think? Um, because I, th- I mean, I mean, intuitively, for me, I think that passing is a superior concept to identification because so the the identification concept buys into this really crude, naive, first personal, subjectivist, all ups, almost solipsistic sort of I, I, me, me, mine. Like I'm what I say I am. I'm sovereign. I say what I am. You can't say what I am, which is false. I am what other people say I am. And so passing, I mean, I'm not, I don't decide what I am. I'm born into a world that's made by the time I get there. Mm-hmm. And so passing is like, you know, you you pass as a man. Yeah, You're kind of this, you're kind of that, but you pass as a man. And I, I think that's superior because it's truer to the way things work. Like you are what other people tell. I mean, my name. I'll be called that for the rest of my days. And someone decided that because of some guy who lived before me. Well, but it's also interesting because passing as a different race is kind of different than passing as a different class. Mm. Because I like if if I were not to sort historically of, though. Well, not okay. There are some ways in which it's similar, but for instance, I can't. I can maybe pass as rich if I wanted to, like buy some nice clothing or whatever. Right? I could maybe convince the people that I had a lot of money. But at the end of the day, that's where my that's where the passing ends because I can't actually do anything because I don't have the money. Well, they'll decide, right? With passing, I mean, passing means others decide. Well, but I mean, it's not like I can um, buy a house if I don't have the, the money to do it. Gotcha. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and so that's I feel like where. Well, that's the thing. The sort of the sort of subjectivist tendency in all these discussions is like, so like what I just said, for example. Well, they'll decide whether you're blah 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 or not, and then you say, well, no, I can't buy the house if I don't have it. The sort, the standard approach to these things just sort of neglects those realistic features. Like, do you have the cash to actually be that? Right, right. That, that, I think that's a major problem with this stuff. The subjectivism in mm-hmm. all of this, like, I mean, that's the identification thing. Like, you identify as X. Uh-huh. That's subjective. Uh, but, um, so I think also jumping forward, um. That's kind of in leftist psychology when we were talking about before that they want to be a part of the meritocracy without the money. Mm. So they kind of want to pass as powerful, but they're not. Mm. So you put on these airs of um, I'm fighting for this oppressed person and Mm. we're winning in these culture wars. Yeah, which makes me powerful, right? I'm virtuous, which makes me powerful. Moral capital. Um, You know, and- That's a category we should- fucking moral capital trademark right now yeah what? It's, not, it's not cultural capital it's moral capital moral capital yeah. you may have more money but let me tell you i am yeah. superior <laughs> yes yes and i think that goes into we were saying we were going to talk about how um you know it's the left is that. unconfrontational mm-hmm. but i think i wanted to say that right I have a belief of how they're unconfrontational, but when we talk about identity, they become extremely confrontational. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is part and of the antinomy of the left that the, we want to talk about. The question is really, why do they choose identity to be the, the, the battle, the battleground? Yeah, who wants rather to Rather than hill? economics. Right. You know, because 
And because identity to me, it lends itself. Why I would say that they're unconfrontational at large is because when you fight on the identity grounds, what you're fighting on is basically like um, it devolves into uh, like discourse policing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically just how do you talk about these things? It doesn't actually mm-hmm. talk about how you materially interact mm-hmm. with these identities mm-hmm. and how to dissolve them mm-hmm. because you don't want to dissolve them because that's your battleground. Oh, that's also your clout, your cachet or whatever. That's right. the currency you're dealing so in. So when you're talking about confrontation, um, what it lends itself to when you only talk about discourse as your realm of confrontation you don't actually want to develop a coherent plan mm-hmm. um, to fight against, uh, uh, you know, material degradation. Mm-hmm. You don't want to fight against that because you're too busy fighting about discourse and how we explain these mm-hmm. things because you find your power in um, intellect. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the meritocracy without the money. But if you go into... None of us are meritous. If you if you have the conservative view of we need to have ownership of capital mm-hmm. to have power mm-hmm. and not just ownership of discourse and how you explain me as an individual, you know, ownership of identity. If you expand it to capital, mm-hmm. then your fight is different mm-hmm. and the confrontation is a lot different. Yeah. And it, it it and because you're fighting something that is based off of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. You're going to ne- necessarily have to use the tools of that system to mm-hmm. beat that system, mm-hmm. um, which people don't want to do. Whereas when you're talking about discourse, the tools are very flexible. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's about because it becomes ambiguous because you could know something about Hegel. I could know something more about Marx mm-hmm. and we can argue around each other all day. And we're both right at the end of the day. We both keep to, we both keep our virtue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, we're both fucking winners. Our we're pride. both everybody wins. Yep. It's like the Care Bears. Uh, I remember as a kid yeah. watching this thing, the No Rules game, and people would use the bats upside down and they'd hit the volleyball upwards, and everyone's just sort of dancing. And at the end, they all shout "Yay!" And then someone says, "What's happening?" Say, it's a No Rules game, and then right. someone, everybody wins. But at the end of the day, if you're fighting as far as economics, if that's where you have to be confrontational, you don't get the money. You don't win. Right. Right. Lost. Someone else decides whether you it's win. It's a lot win. more uh, concrete mm-hmm. in that way. Well, and I, so let's go into this. Well, let's I was just going to say, too, just uh, as an anecdotal, anecdotal kind of sort of aside, which is that, like, you know, a lot of um, a lot of talk about the PMC makes it, you know, goes around in left circles these days. But what's interesting about the PMC. Let's segue into the discussion of political identity okay, because sure. I think PMC has become an identity. Right. An object of hatred like a voodoo doll. For right. Yeah, 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 leftists. yeah, yeah. But Especially I mean, those leftists who say I'm not a leftist. Right. But I mean, so what's interesting is sort of piggybacking on what Thaddeus was saying is that like, um, if you can frame things with respect to discourse, mm-hmm. well, all you have to do is let people get educated mm-hmm. and you don't actually have to give them any money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all like, it's all the knowledge economy. It's, you know, mm-hmm. you, you see this all the time with people working for experience, working for exposure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You mean doing unpaid internships? Unta- all this stuff. It all it, it all feeds into that. If that's your battle, then like you can win that battle without, you know, any Winning money anything, whatsoever. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Well, you can win and the that, battle without defeating anyone. Right. And, and that's, it's super beneficial to those in power because they don't actually have to give you anything. They don't have to concede anything. Mm-hmm. They can just let you fight, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how, how is it that this is going to sound weird to a person outside of leftist circles, but so I, but I want to say that the left turns politics, um, for instance, being a socialist, so-called, uh-huh. into an identity, the way that class gets turned into an identity or whatever, instead of a real thing in the world. Like you said, someone might, I might be able to trick someone into thinking I'm rich, but I don't have the money really to buy the house to be rich. Right. So this sort of thing, like, you know, the discourse is disconnected from the facts in a way, and then it becomes an identity with many people on the left. There's something, there's something like, Politics can become an identity too with mm-hmm. leftists. Oh, yeah. And a conservative will say, of course, but I don't mean like your normal mainstream liberal identity discourse. I mean the sort of more radical groups, right? They make politics into an identity. How does that work? I think it's an identity similar to um, I'm a Christian, I'm Hindu, um, I'm Buddhist, I'm a socialist, I'm a socialist, like sectarian, I'm a Marxist Leninist, <laughs> right? I'm I'm a Trotskyist, I'm a, a Maoist, yeah, you know, um, it's that type of discourse. I'm a Titoist. Well, I mean, I mean, I <laughs> let think, me tell you. I mean, we see this. I mean, Daniel and I have talked about this like on our own a Ad lot. Nauseum. Yeah, with the PMC. You know, the, the PMC is a label that describes a real. Um, subset of the working class, right? Sure. Um, unproductive, educated, um, segment of the working class that occupies primarily supervises and disciplines supervises, other workers. Right, managerial positions. It could be applied to an extremely broad and diverse um set of um occupations, from lawyers to teachers to other people, soldiers, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Depends um, on the soldier. And Depends so, on your MOS. Right. And so in that sense, the PMC is primarily just a descriptive label in the same way that working class is a descriptive label, same way that a capitalist is. They occupy a specific role within the reproduction mm-hmm. of the system of social relations. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people on the left, PMC is like an it's like a normative thing. It's bad to be PMC. Um and you a, fucking piece of and, shit. And it's attached to it's it's you know, it's attached to all sorts of cultural things, right? Um, it's attached to, uh, a certain smugness and disdain for, you know, quote unquote, real working class people, right. authentic working class people. I don't eat scones. I eat pop tarts. Right. Right. Um, uh, you know, um, where, you know, your only understanding of working class people is like they shop at Walmart or something right, and it's right. like, come on. Um, you eat mac and cheese from a box. Right, right, right. Um, and of course, a lot of people do shop at Walmart because it's like one of the largest. Because we live in a global economy <laughs> and you have finite income. Well, also because Walmart is like the largest employer in the United States. Of course, like a lot of people work and shop at Walmart. That's just a fact. You should but, buy local. <laughs> but anyways, so that's the, that's like a, um, there's a, um, it's almost like a category error. So you let's know? break it down and make it really simple. There are some leftists who think that if you're a member of the managerial class, then boo, something right, like that. Right? right. And they're almost more irate about that than uh, capitalists or capital. Yeah. Well, I think it's because, I think it's because they see the PMC as being like the, the real, you know, they, I mean, 
there's a kind of conflation. PMC works on behalf of the capitalist class, right? Trotsky can't uh, waste an opportunity to I can't make a I can't believe I named my cat Trotsky. I mean, it's a good name for a cat, but it makes people think that I'm a trot. I like Trotsky or something, and I don't give a fuck about Trotsky. Well, Trotsky was always making trouble for everyone. Well, if he doesn't shut up, he's going to get an ice pick to his head, huh? <laughs> oh, um, I'm not going <laughs> to. Peta's going to fucking kill me now. Um, no, they're going to kill your cat because that's what you do when you that's sacrifice. What Peta does <laughs> <laughs> when you sacrifice an animal, they love them. They that's love him to I death. They Peta love doesn't him to death. actually save. Ca- they he's save good. animals. They kill. Most he's a good. Of them. He's a very good boy. By um, save, it's they mean like the um, the the Spanish priest conquistadors saving oh, souls in yeah. Latin America. Right? All dogs go to heaven. That's um, right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, so for a lot of leftists or some leftists or what have you, the PMC, um, you know, does, does the, the bidding on behalf mm-hmm. of the capital. Well, that's class. true. And that's why they are mm-hmm. the enemy that's as it true. were. But of course, like, I think that there's a sort of, um, a kind of problem with this conception, which is that like, while that may be true in some sense, it's not true in every sense. It's certainly mm-hmm. not true for every PMC, PMC person. Mm-hmm. It's, it's difficult to see how a public school teacher in Chicago is doing the work of the capitalist mm-hmm. class, you know, on behalf of the capitalist class, unwittingly or not. You know what I mean? Sure, it's it's maybe easy to see how it's being done for some journalist mm-hmm. who's working for NBC or, mm-hmm. or 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 the New York Times or or mm-hmm. what have you. Um, and and I, so my problem with the PMC label is that. It's too broad for for one thing. It's too abstract of a label, um, and then on the other hand, is it it presumes to uh, it presumes to um, it posits a uh, causal relationship between one's class position and one's uh, personal politi- politics, right? So, like it says. Um, it basically treats all PMC people as having the same politics, which I think is not a very rigorous or thoughtful. Well, analysis. I mean, I believe that class position does determine beliefs. I, so please specify how. Of you course, find I that believe that class politics determines beliefs, but it's never a one-to-one thing. It's never just like so. You are working class, ergo, you have these politics. You are PMC, ergo, you have these politics. Because guess what? There's, uh, you know, how many million, hundreds of millions of people mm-hmm. in this in this country who are working class who have a diverse set of of political beliefs. Well, right. I would say in this, on this front that the problem first of, okay, so let's back, back up. Let's use the definition. So Barbara Ehrenreich, John Ehrenreich, 1977 wrote a paper called the professional managerial class. And then they went on to, they went on to say that the contemporary leftism basically after the new left of the 1960s, abandoning labor class and economics for Gender, sexuality, ethnicity, because they so were all PMC basically. Is, is because they're PMC. So yeah. that's the they they occupy a managerial position in life after the post-war economic boom. They all went to university. They should have been managers. There weren't enough jobs, and then they just had to migrate into social organizing and active activism stuff. Sure. So they say, "quote We define the professional managerial class as consisting of salaried mental workers who do not own the means of production." and whose major function in the social division of labor may be described broadly as the reproduction of capitalist culture. 
and capitalist class relations. Mm-hmm. End quote. Right. My objection to people who, who, so I think there are problems with the working class being divided up into managers and non-managerial workers. That creates political problems. Of course. That doesn't mean the PMC isn't part of the working class. The problem with the people who use PMC as a sort of slur. It's a pejorative, yeah. And I can relate. It's annoying. Yeah, of course. It's annoying. The problem is they're equivocating between economic and cultural Mm -hmm. discourse. PMC only makes sense in a rigorous economic account. What is the function they Mm. serve in the system of aggregate surplus value production? Right. They are expedient but unproductive. They cut costs. They cut costs with regard to other laborers. Mm -hmm. Innovation, technologically, layoffs, discipline, so forth. Right. But the people who hate them just hate the cultural shit. Right. They hate the fact that they are, um, you know, arrogant, intellectual. I don't even think that's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out three, three ways. I think I'm going to, this is my turn to do some psychology of what people think, um, some pop psychology. I think there are three ways you can put this. Each one, um, worse. Well, we'll see what you guys decide which one is worse and which one explains the best. I think you can call it anti-daddy uh, politics mm. is why people have an adversity to the PMC. You can call it parasite politics, like the movie, and I'll explain each one. And you can call it anti-bully psychology. It's resentment. Um, so, yeah, it's resentment. Somebody had some power over you and right. now you resent and, them. And, and resentment to the person that is directly over them. And why I say it's anti-daddy first is because a lot of people who are anti-PMC are the children of PMC. That is so true. They get a negative <laughs> view. Make it personal. <laughs> I know, it's, but it is true. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, it uh, really is. They hate mommy and daddy because they were PMC. And they, they couldn't have a lolly on their sixth. They couldn't have a third lolly on their sixth birthday. Right. And these people are always questioning them of why didn't you make it, you know, as one of us, right? Why yeah. aren't you here? Why are you struggling? Well, the whole society is downwardly mobile, mom and dad. Why don't you understand So I that? can't help it. I'm not as successful as a baby boomer, so exactly. I hate my parents. So basically. I hate my parents, yeah. right? Because they're always questioning my success. And then why I say it's anti, it, it's Parasite, the movie, um, because it is always focused, if it's not focused on mom and dad, it's focused on the group that's directly above you. Mm-hmm. The bosses is what they always mm-hmm. say. Right, right. We're against the bosses. Yeah. Well, well the bosses guess, are managers. Yeah, they definitely are. But your bosses are also a part of capitalism and they have economic pressures that and are responsibilities. Put on them right. And responsibilities. And they can they can be swayed one way or another based on how you put pressure. And moreover, on, they get paid a wage or a salary too. They are not the exactly. ultimate recipients right. of surplus value extracted exactly. from the working class. So, yeah. like Except for the top one-tenth of one percent of managers who are the primary shareholders. Yes. Thing is, yeah, you're right. Socialist resentment goes only so far as what it can touch, what it touch, taste, see, smell, and hear. The five senses, like you were saying before, you know, management I can see. I can't see a shareholder. Right. So I'm not going to take right. it to the system. Right. I'm going to sort of let it fall on this particular schmo and I'm going to just right. let him have it. And right. where I put that in anti-bullying psychology is, you know, I had a conversation with somebody where they were talking about direct action against the landlords. Mm. And I was like, the landlords aren't necessarily your enemy because who, do your, who does your landlord have to pay? 
right. or the answerable. Your to. landlord has to pay a bank, mm-hmm. right. which means that's putting pressure on them. Meaning if you go after the bank, you don't have to go after your landlord. And why I say this is like a bully, because I explained this to this person. It's like, say you're on a schoolyard and you got this big kid who's beating the shit out of you every day. Mm-hmm. Right. So here's what you could do. There's there's a few options you have. You can fight that bully yourself, mm-hmm. right? But what the result of that is, that bully is going to continue to bully another kid. They're going to continue to bully someone else. Or they'll fight just kick your your ass. <laughs> They're just going to victimize the next tenant. You didn't do anything at the end so of the you day. Mean, so you mean if you put up a, a certain degree of fight, they'll leave you alone, but they'll bully someone else? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. That, that's, how they, that's how it works. And then second thing you could do is you could round up all the kids, right? And you could all fight that bully. So that's what can't they want. Bully anyone. I mean that that's a thing you could do, but it still doesn't change the dynamics that created that bully. Right. Why does that bully exist? Now, the third thing you could do, which I think America did relatively adequately after Columbine, is you can go to the education system and say, we need to have an anti-bullying campaign. Mm-hmm. on the um, level of the whole the district. System, yeah. So now yeah. we are cancel- We are getting rid of bullying in the whole system. Well, but leftists at large, they don't want to do that mm-hmm. because it doesn't maintain the individual triumph. Number one, you don't get to fight your bully directly. Needs. And right. it doesn't satisfy the rage component. Yeah. Because now you have to work in cooperation with your bullies. Yeah. Now you're helping your bully mm-hmm. to yeah. not feel like a victim so he doesn't victimize yeah. other yeah. people, which they don't want to do because they hate that motherfucker, mm-hmm. which I understand. Everyone yeah. hates their bully, but it's not going to end bullying you hating enough. your bully. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I feel like there's a fourth one. I don't have a pithy name for it, but it, it comes down to the kind of narcissism of minor differences thing mm-hmm. where, you know, I see this a lot online where you see people who hate the PMC. But if you go back far enough on their interactions, those people used to be friends, mm-hmm. right? Like the person who hates the PMC, labeling, at, lobbying accusations, this person is PMC, you know, they're just the DNC cuck or whatever, whatever kind of um, um, kind of slogan you want to use. They used to be friends, but at a certain point they had a disagreement. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, this is the narcissism mind difference. Right. At a certain point, they had a disagreement, and maybe the the PMC person um, was me- was mean to you, basically, or was like said something shitty, or or what have you, or you fired PM- you, and then it just becomes it basically just becomes a personal campaign of a vengeance. Like, I can't believe you fucking disagreed with me about this. Well, there's that. Like, and it's because, and the reason you disagree with me is not because I'm wrong. And you're right, or um, it's because you're PMC and you can't actually see that you're just. Totally, yeah, there are two you know. flavors of this, though. The one is that the one is PMC and the other one is like, um, so the one is, so by PMC, I mean unproductive managerial labor. And the other one is, let's say, a productive man, a productive non-managerial sure. labor, like a service sector worker, like a, I don't know, construction worker, for instance. There's that. The other thing, this is perhaps more, I'm not being cynical, but it's it's a cynical sort of situation. They're both PMC. And the one yeah. likes Tito better than Lenin. Yeah. Or whatever. 
And then they say, what? You're an idiot. That's wrong. You're a reformist. You're a blah, blah, blah. And then they hate each other and they're like, fuck you. You're a PMC. And they don't talk anymore. That's just bullshit. Right. Or there's an even worse one, which is that they're both PMC and the one is just more successful than the other. The one resents the one for being more successful and says, I can't believe you're so fucking PMC. Even though, of course, this is like bad faith, right? I'm also PMC. Like, I am PMC. You are PMC. No, I'm not. Yes, we are. No, I'm not. Yes, we are. No, I'm not. What is your profession? Spartan, what is your profession? We are teachers. I teach a little. Well, I teach a little, of course, but that's what we but here, are. But here's, this is how, where, how does this, this is not, where the economic analysis us? is degenerating into cultural muck. Maybe you are. How am I, how am I a PMC and you are not? Okay. So we're going to go into it. You've got productive and unproductive labor. Wait, wait, wait. Fight. <laughs> we're gonna i feel like this is you clinging to the cultural thing i don't want to be PMC. it's not culture this is sheer economic <laughs> sheer economic analysis by by productive labor in the marxist sense i mean a worker who produces more value than they receive mm-hmm. the, through being exploited in the capital relation they produce surplus value and then unproductive labor, that can mean, for instance, um, commercial clerk, like in a retail store. But the ones you're talking about, we're talking about PMC, they're unproductive, but they manage others, right? So you, the distinction is productive and unproductive labor. Sure. Um, if, you, if you work, for instance, at a state institution, you're paid out of revenue, out of taxes. You're not being paid out of capital in order to enrich capital namely by producing surplus value. You're not a productive worker. You're being paid out of revenue to foster the cultural relationships and the capitalist relationships the capitalism needs. So at a state school, I mean, I was at a state school. You could have made that argument to me then. I'm being so the difference strict. is So the difference is because you're at a private institution and I'm at a public one? I think that's part of it. So, I mean, you're getting paid out of state-level revenue. Mm-hmm. It's not going directly into capital. You're not producing surplus value. Mm-hmm. You're fostering the relationships capitalism needs. So a person could make the case that you're PMC. I still don't think it's completely kosher to say that because your background is different. There are people who are PMC economically and their background is that, so it's ingrained all the way down. Yeah. But a person at a private school, for instance, those um, the um, endowment basically consists of investments which pay out money. And it's non-for-profit legally, but let's not kid ourselves here. I mean, they're not paying taxes, but that's a corporation. So you think that your your role is more productive than mine because you it's a private institution? Ultimately, if we had perfect knowledge, it'd be a question of fact. Like, sure. look at the math. And in the course of my six years or whatever, do I create more value than I receive in a fellowship? Because, I mean, what? I got like... 15 people in my class, I get paid however much per year and they pay what, $60,000 a year? Hell hell yeah. I mean, when I teach, when any yeah. teacher teaches there, yeah. more value is coming in in terms of I mean, I like going that, out. But I mean, that also could be the same even though my money is not coming from a capitalist. But that's right. also- Yes, but that's okay, also, so more revenue is coming also, in but that's for the also institution than you get, but- Right, but that's also complicated because public institutions like mine- don't receive all of their funding strictly from public okay, or government. But, but I'm saying there are private, you know, we have a board of directors, right, we have private investors, right. et cetera, et cetera. But I'm saying this is the terrain of the discussion. 
matters of fact about economics. It's not about like, I don't know. You just are advocating for student loan debt forgiveness. Oh, you PMC, blah, blah. Right. We don't have to take you seriously. That's cultural antipathy. That's resentment. <coughs> that is not an economic analysis. This is, you see what I'm pointing at? Right. Yeah. To kind of cap it off, I, I would say there, there's a hazard in what you're saying, Daniel, because of endowments. Mm-hmm. So in my job, we do a lot of projects for University of Chicago. University of Chicago. Um, I don't know if they're public or private. I don't. University of Chicago is private. Okay. We're going to have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, um, even if I was, you know, working towards, uh, working for a private school or a public school, um, both of them have endowments that are pretty private. Yeah. Whether you're public or private, um, your endowment is spent mostly on real estate. Yeah. Um, buying up properties for the, um, you know, the school. So at the end of the day, both of you are being billed out at a certain amount to produce um, the ability either to acquire that money from donors or from your labor in order to increase the endowment of the school so that they can buy up more property. Mm-hmm. And that's where I come in to help them build that property. <laughs> right? So, so you're, our en- you're our enemy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there is a difference though because the, the university... Uh, so public institutions can run at a loss. But they don't functionally. Uh, in Chicago, that has happened. And, it, and it's fine. It keeps going because yeah. where there's a government, there's a way. Well, when Bruce, Rau- when Bruce Rauner was uh, governor, we didn't have a state budget for like almost mm-hmm. two years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and I mean a so-called private institution just would have had to fold at that point. Even though they're considered non for profit, they're private, and so there is a real well, difference. Well, it depends there. on how much how much of endowment they have. People, we're getting bogged down here. That's um, true. But let me let me go back then. There there was something interesting Daniel said. It was kind of like an anthropological thing, so. <laughs> where yeah, where you were talking about you have people who are PMC and you have people who are PMC and the children of PMC. Yeah. So it starts to go into this idea of classes perpetuating themselves through generations mm-hmm. so it goes from just being a qualitative mm-hmm. definition of a person's position mm-hmm. to being a part of their identity mm-hmm. so it goes from just an economic class to an identity when you reach the next generation because they're being taught the values of that system mm-hmm. that are not actually based on anything mm-hmm. material these are just the customs and courtesies that you use in order to interact in this PMC space. Mm-hmm. And they teach that to their children, which then develops an identity. Mm-hmm. So then we're talking about a generational thing, which is very interesting towards identity and how it kind of, I guess, intersects with the economic class. You know, I, uh, so if we're talking about our um, social, social classes, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there is that sort of cultural inertia. It's hard to deny. Well, I mean, think about Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, or Donald it. Trump. People hate him because his, his through whatever bio, biographical reasons, his character is kind of vulgar prole. Sure. But I mean, I mean, the Clampets, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Classic uh, c- comedic trope. Poor Hillbilly 
redneck family. They strike oil. They're suddenly rich as hell. Mm -hmm. But the whole point of the show, the joke of the show, Mm -hmm. is that in fact, even though that they, even though they have made a bunch of money and they are, by all accounts, no longer poor, Mm -hmm. they're no longer working class because they have an enormous amount of wealth. Mm -hmm. They're still white trash. And you can tell this by the way that they act and by the way that they're so stupid and the way, oh, isn't it hilarious that they don't understand all these things. And and of course, these are just cultural customs. They're just not acquainted to these things. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you know, um, but in actuality, their class position has definitely changed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so- just kind of point get that was just a piggyback on I guess what well, that to the point with, with the like Beverly that. Hillbillies, you'd you'd have to kind of think what would the Beverly Hillbillies two be? What not the direct children? I know they had children in the well, yeah. their children, their grandchildren. They're they're gonna be a part of that, you know, wealthy yeah. society. Right, two generations away, like you know, their grandchildren or whatever. Like those kids are growing up rich. They're going to privileged and they have They're a certain the set of but cultural gonna, expectations that no, it, it is. So it's the not Kennedys, gonna, it's not going to change. It's not necessarily going to overnight change the no, sort of ingrained habitual about. customs. We're talking about, right. um, well, we're talking about generation, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. we're talking yeah. about the Kennedys here. You have a grandfather who was a fucking bootlegger, right? He's a crook. <laughs> and then they become politicians and then they become the, Example for the American political family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They are totally different now Mm -hmm. than what the grandfather was. And I'm sure definitely what they were, but the grandfather as his culture. Right. That's what I'm talking about with the PMC transforming into a culture. Yeah. And the leftist psychology around fighting against that culture, the counterculture. So the anti PMC sentimentality on the left. Is a counterculture. It's a reactive force. It's a subculture. But it's sure. also a counterculture because I feel like the left is, you know, I mean, if it, thinking about even just Aaron Reich's analysis of the new left as being primarily PMC because the labor left has basically been left behind. And so you have a whole generation of sort of PMC leftists embracing the culture wars, embracing those battles that are no longer, you know, sort of labor focused. Like that created a culture that basically you you have to think the, the leftists today are like the children of those leftists, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. um, or of that generation. So by culture, what we mean is the sort of historically inherited, uh, habits and spontaneous dispositions. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just the set of, yeah, that's, that's yeah. real. Yeah. Th- that. I mean, I think culture is sort of a spectral boogeyman, which is- And so that, but that is interesting, right? Is that the anti-PMC is the kind of counterculture because the left, I think today as it exists, is primarily within um, within the, within those- Agreed. And that's the reason why I can understand being so hostile and critical towards the PMC and why I, I say like, rigor, like with all the economic theoretical rigor, like I say, I'm not PMC. When someone says, Daniel- how can you <laughs> how can you say this? You're PMC. It's like no, I'm not. When it comes to inherited, spontaneous, habitual, uh, historical norms, sorry, that's not it. One and two, if it turns out, question of matter of fact, that my position where I'm at is a matter of productive work, then I'm also not that because that's unproductive work. And so, 
I mean, I'm not above the hostility towards the PMC. I have it. I, I, yeah, point is, I have it too. Point yeah. is, that cannot substitute economic for economic analysis. Of course, that's it, the point. Well, it's it also not, can't substitute it, for political. That's it can't actually for for a certain political program. program yes. Right. I mean, because their political program, then you get asinine takes like. Uh, Forgiving student like, loans do is, a, is a PMC handout, don't right? Don't do it. Well, okay. Well, forgiving student loans is a PMC handout because- right, let's just go into it. Okay, yeah. PMC, people say this. P, uh, forgiving student loans is a PMC handout. It's just prof, It's just benefiting the well-to-do. The, they'll say it's a PMC handout because most society, people yeah. in the working class do not have student loans. That's true. That's empirically true. But like, let's think about this financially. Who's actually getting the shaft if you forgive student loans? Assuming we don't do QE. Right. Right. If you do QE, then that's another problem. But if you actually just cancel debt, that's class warfare okay. on the rich. Gotta back up. That's a that's a big one, right? So every debt, let's say you lend me money. Yeah, I have $160,000 in student loans. Technically, Whoa, got really real. Yeah. Technically, technically, I borrowed those from the government. But of course, the government didn't. They sold it to they a sold private it to a investor. private thing who are now using that to basically do asset back speculation. Right, right, right. But I mean, just to make it really simple and clear and easy to understand, let's say you lend me ten bucks to buy uh, a used copy of the Marx Engels Reader from Thaddeus, right? Yeah. So you lend me ten bucks. Now you have a ten dollar credit. You say, actually, I'll give you ten bucks if you give me eleven back tomorrow. So now you have an eleven dollar credit, and I have a eleven dollar debt. Yeah, I give the ten bucks to Thaddeus, uh-huh. and now I have a copy of the Marx Engels Reader. He has ten bucks. I have an eleven dollar debt. You have an eleven dollar credit. Mm-hmm. The debt equals the credit. They cancel each other out. Right. So if someone with authority came in and said, "Actually, Adam, you're never going to get that eleven dollars. <clears throat> you've let me off the hook, and you've canceled my debt, but you've also destroyed your financial wealth." Exactly. And so. Debt cancellation is class warfare vis-a-vis oligarchs if that means um, simply annulling that rather than just paying them through currency creation. Right, 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 right. And so debt, debt cancellation can be a, class of, uh, a case of class warfare if we understand this correctly. Yes. In a way which we should obviously be concerned with because 70% of financial operations are speculative investments like mortgages. And the overwhelming majority of wealth in America with respect to the capitalist shareholding class is financial wealth, not mm-hmm. real assets, because real assets and industry has moved abroad. Right. So these people just simply are f- pseudo-phony Marxists when they say this. They should just think a little harder, because if you want to take it to them and you want to destroy their wealth, you're going to have to destroy their financial wealth. What is financial asset? It's someone else's debt. Get real for 10 seconds. Well, and this is where the cultural stuff comes in and where the kind of leftist uh, kind of um, purity, authenticity thing comes in. They want to be able to say that they understand working class needs better than PMC people. Like a fucking therapist. Right. I know what you want. That's actually just perverse. And it's just like, and it's also just like, it doesn't matter if you know what you, what, Working class people need more. You get the question out of is like what we're actually doing and what's actually going to change. You get the things. right tool for the job. But that's and not strike. even it, right? So we're talking in America. Americans are very comfortable people, whether we want to believe it or not. Um, we're very comfortable. And the point is, I'm is only that comfortable when, when I'm you cancel the debt, right, of the, the the shareholders of the financial class, then you are empowering um, empowering uh, the managerial class. 
because those are the people who are taking out most of the loans. So these are the people that on the left, they want to fight. That's their bully. So what you're functionally doing when you remove debt is you are empowering the people that they hate the most. So Mm -hmm. you're talking about removing that visceral emotion from them. You're forcing them to ally with the people that they hate the most in order to fight the cause. Right, right. And they can't see the cause. So if they can't even see the cause and you're telling them to fight their, you're telling them to align with their bully for something that they can't even see, Mm -hmm. your message is dead. But but the crazy thing about that is- We have to be able to, we have to be able to think farther than our senses can deliver. Like we have to be able to understand that it's a systemic threat in the- so the, the capitalist class, so-called, is a class of shareholders and absentee owners. It's not the bosses. It's not the people who can manifest before you that you can point your finger at and like the way the PMC can. It's just too easy. Very much so. And I would say that's where the discourse comes in because that's what I'm talking about is the people who talk about this shit, mm-hmm. not the people who interact with this shit. Because we were told once upon a time when we were trying to present this as an action, mm-hmm. let's fight against the moratorium, let's fight the banks. Mm-hmm. We were told... People don't understand the banks. And then what did we point like out? We don't. pointed out, what about Occupy Wall Street? Yeah. That was a fight against the banks. So yes, people understand the banks, but the people who are in opposition to the PMC, they don't understand the banks. Their, their enemy Precisely. is not the banks. Their enemy is the people who have acquired the loans from the banks and are extracting money from them to pay for those loans. Right. right. right? So- the everyone else understands that it's the banks yeah. and the in fight, the United States, the fight isn't the, I don't know. Like at, at some point, are we, is our, is our, our fight futile if we're, uh, uh, um, you know, rallying against the anti PMC and trying to educate them. Um, that could also be futile when we should just make an in route around them well, my- and organize people who already have this understanding. I would not say we, the left should be fighting against the PMC. It also shouldn't be fighting for the PMC. It should understand the economy and do right. what needs to be done for the entire working class. And right. that's not to say that there isn't a difference between the PMC and productive labor, so-called blue-collar, white-collar distinction. Right. There is one. But the point is, bats are not humans and humans are not bats, but they're both mammals. And right. there can be specific differences, different species right. within a genus. But instance. also- one If you the- can't understand that, you have a problem. Right. And also- there's a total blind spot in the way that a lot of these people talk about the PMC because they will um, say, oh, even if you can get them to acknowledge that the PMC is working class, they'll still say, oh, but they have different interests, right? They do bidding on behalf of the capitalist class. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they will often fight for um, other members of the working class who are Republicans, who are whatever, what what have you, who clearly have also um, different interests. It's mm-hmm. also about where you align, right? So you can align very well with the PMC. So let's take this case study, right? I work for my boss. My boss has a mortgage. If I fight for mortgage forgiveness, it's not just fighting for corporate mortgages. We fight for homes. That's helping my mother. That's helping my brothers, Mm -hmm. right? If we're talking about Medicare for all, my boss, professional managerial class, pays for medical care for the office. Right. If I get Medicare for all, it helps him 
but it also helps me. So if you spend your time just fighting the professional managerial class, you're going to miss the point of fighting for the things that you have mutual agreement on despite them. You're not fighting for them. You're fighting for yourself. And the fact that they make gains, whether that is more than you or before you, if you are getting something from it, fight that fight. That's all you need to know, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to have it. It it doesn't need to be abstract as to who are they in service of. It's, is the thing that you're fighting going to get you something and are they potentially going to be on your side in getting that thing? Because more people is always better than less people. And at a certain point, once you make all of those fundamental gains of Medicare for all of guaranteed jobs, which are good for them too. Um, Once you get all of those things and you're going to the next level of trying to socialize the means of production, which will be in opposition to them. That's when they become your enemy. Not now, not before you, you, you focus on there's, there's a hierarchy of needs. And once you get the triage done of the basic needs where you all align in society, then you can start fighting those, those, yeah. Those different parts where you have class antagonism that is real. Like my boss is not going to want to become a co-op. Mm-hmm. My boss or or uh, Walmart isn't going to like the idea that you shouldn't be able to invest in other industries if you don't work in that industry. That only workers in a company can have equity in that company. They're not going to want that because they get a lot of their money mm-hmm, from private mm-hmm. investors outside of the company. Mm-hmm. That's when you have that fight. But on the fight of... Uh, uh, of debt forgiveness Mm -hmm. and on Medicare for all and on guaranteed jobs, which I would say are more important or ending the the, the prison industrial complex, Mm -hmm. you know, ending the war on drugs. All of those things are more important. Mm -hmm. And those people are allied with you in that fight. And Mm -hmm. you have those fights first before you have the other fights. Well, yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, agreed, agreed. Two, two points though. I mean, the first is that, so agreed it's, a lot of the radic- more radical leftists are going to want to cut their nose off to spite their face when they say this kind of anti-PMC stuff like, I won't take uh, debt forgiveness, I won't take health care because those things are just, for the PMC on the one hand or on the other hand, those things are just like uh, remedial measures which will distract people from the sort of more radical thing. Um, like if you give everyone health care, maybe they'll just accept capitalism whatever yeah i think that's nonsense because people only fight when they can the right. immiseration theory is false I think the immiseration theory is it's people do not get radicalized by being immiserated and fighting for medicare will disempower the capitalist for your next fight just yeah think and, of high the hierarchy of needs the, the and the by capitalist we mean it. we mean absentee owners of capital we do mm-hmm. not the rentier mean. class let's right. start with that right. yeah because because capital is completely financialized it's not well, 19th also, century industrial and also capital. medicare for all is not just an attack on the insurance industry it's an attack on finance capital broadly who make money off of people's outstanding medical debt yeah right they I sell mean, that debt and they exactly. not only i mean they not the only thing. buy patents which means rights to profits and then raise the prices like what was that guy's name screlly or whatever martin screlly the hedge yeah. fund they buy the rights which means they buy rights to shares and other people's profits yeah and then they just and his justification the was basically I have a I have a duty to my uh, shareholders fiduciary to, responsibility yeah so that's yeah, exactly. financialization through and through finance capital um 
let me explain fiduciary responsibility first. And here's how I explain it. It's, it's fucking dumb because fiduciary responsibility means you have to maximize profits for your shareholders. And what that's equivalent to, well, where the hazard comes in is let's say you're driving, right? And your job is to make it to work as fast as possible. Guess what? You're going to have to break the law to do that. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the, the best way you can do that is to put everybody else's life in jeopardy except for the boss that yeah. is paying you. Well, you put your own company and capitalism general in jeopardy. Yeah, that's what yeah. fiduciary responsibility is. It should not be well, a Well, it's concept. just an excuse. It's bad faith. The second thing I want to mention, though, is that nevertheless, nevertheless, all that being said, we have to admit, even though like some bitter radical leftist you know, at times, myself included, I'm not above it. Um, they don't like the PMC. Why? We have to admit, the PMC has usurped the the position the, the, of the so-called left. They're the mouthpiece of the right. They control the discourse, and 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 they are kind of doing it for themselves. And one thing I read, one thing I read recently, which was very interesting because I hadn't thought about it that way. The so the so-called defund the police slogan. What that is, if you understand that, you could, here's one way you can understand that. You can understand it as like, boo, police, bad, they hurt people. Okay. Intelligible, even if you disagree. Another way you can understand it is like, what a leftist will say to you, what that means is redirect the funds from the police to uh, preventative things like schooling and uh, cultural, social things to prevent, you know, bad things from happening in terms right. of crime. right. The corollary of that, though, is that what that means is more jobs for PMC-type people, more teaching jobs. And so when the leadership of leftist organizations, which are predominantly PMC people, scream about defunding the police, what they're screaming for is more government jobs. Yeah. That's pretty funny. It is funny, but at the end of the day- it's not wrong. More government jobs might be more productive for society. And, it, and it's good for them. And it's sure. Yeah. Well, right, but it, to the point, whether or not it's good for them, if it's good for me, I don't give a shit. Well, that's that's where these anti that's where a certain stripe of the anti PMC leftist shows their wounds and their fangs at the same time, like the bitterness and the resentment, because yeah. they're saying, like, I won't accept that you are helped by something, even if it'll help me, because fuck you. Well, right. And that's. At the end of the day, um, if we are to, I think, correctly understand the PMC as part of the working class, right? Right. Okay. Distinction within a unity. Distinction. Even if they have different interests, even if sometimes um, they make my life more difficult, even if at times they are working on behalf of, you know, the capitalist class, what have you. At the end of the day... My everyday life and my everyday existence is uh, far more similar to theirs than either of ours are to the capitalist shareholder, right? It's like who it's does like that nothing? Was saying who, earlier. Right, right. And so, like, you know, we so have the, more in common than other so called, other people who are so called same identity as us elsewhere, right. like aristocrats, you know, right. like in Europe in the, in the Middle Ages, aristocracy all over Europe, they were all family and they had more in common. Like an aristocrat in England had more in common with an aristocrat in Poland and Russia and Portugal than they had with people right outside their moat. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, may disl- I may resent PMC people for having a better life than me, for having maybe more prestige than me, for having a better reputation than me, 
for having achieved some marker of cultural success that I might want that I don't have, what have you. But that's right? a personal weakness. Those are personal weaknesses. And at the end of the day, both of us work to maintain our existence. And um, neither of us are really um, really at the the sort of core of of. You're making, What's you're not rulers. <laughs> yeah, we're not rulers. Not you know, we don't, ruler. we don't have the sort of power that like, you know, the billionaire class does, right? But again, I mean, that so, being said, again, that being said though, I mean, this, isn't this group say, of people have taken over the left. Of course, this isn't to say that they, this isn't to say okay, that they are add, not. I'm going to add something real quick. All right. Yeah. So do you guys know who Rick the ruler is? Afraid not. No. Slick Rick. Oh yeah. Okay. So we're, we're just going to call. We're, no, no, no. What? Let's, let's like edit that out. WWF. No, he's 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 a hip hop artist from the nineties. Pardon me, Slip I'm just the deeply ruler, out of touch. Man, come on, man. <laughs> he's a like white Randy guy from Ohio. Hulk Hogan. Yeah, sorry. That's the last time I paid attention. <laughs> so, but to the point, what we should be calling the ruling class is Slick Ricks. <laughs> That's what they are. They're Rick the Ruler. Yeah. Well, but Rick the Rick the Ruler is cool. Maybe we shouldn't make them cool. Yeah. All right, people. So <laughs> we've covered in depth one way in which the left made has made politics into a identity, like uh, whatever else. Let's talk about another. I want to talk about the sort of um, dogmatism that that follows from um, letting your actions politically be guided by understanding yourself as a leftist or as a socialist or as a you know earlier i slipped into it myself i'm not above it as a marxist as a marxist as what, a marxist what i mean is i think that it's true that there's a distinction between productive and unproductive labor but do we want to save this conversation for another cast is the well this is still question. identity i mean yeah is it identity though? We're talking more specifically about um, how leftists relate to this. We talked about identity at large, um, in depth, and now we're talking about specifically how the left relates to the identity of being socialist. Let me end it with this. Imagine to try to get a picture of this. You're on the you're on the frontier, right? You where did your family come from? Where did my family come from? Yeah, yeah, like. When? How far back? Uh, like I don't know, four thousand BC. Oh, we're we're German. We're <laughs> we're we're of German stock. That's all I know. And then we, we uh, according to my, I did a ancestry dot com genealogy thing. I think we, at least my mother's side of the family, came over in the eighteen forties from mm -hmm. from Baden Baden. Okay, well, let's say when when was the westward westward expansion? Eighteen hundreds. Yeah, I know, but uh, 1812, but basically after the War of 1812. Yeah, had the Northwest. Uh, you had Ohio, Illinois, right? Wisconsin, right. Yeah. and Indiana were and the, the, the Western territories. Yeah, the line was drawn around Ohio. And right. then what? St. Louis became a launching point westward, right? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, 1849 was the gold rush, obviously, okay. towards, you know, California. Uh -huh. That's why the 49ers have their name. Okay, I think so Missouri was different. I don't think that was a part of what they called the Western territories. At some point, though, that was a launching point for the westward. Sure. I mean, at yeah. one, so I, I know that at one point, I think it was in the early 1800s, Ohio was as far west as it went. Right, right. It was, right. The, it yes. was well, well, even I think 
even a little bit into like the mid 19th century, Ohio, Cincinnati was like the end of the right. railroad line. Yeah. The, um, the river, right? Yeah. And so then I think at a later point, I could be wrong. You know, at any rate, you have these launching points westward there, right? And yeah. so that's a sort of last stop in the sort of readily colonized, so-called civilized uh, North American world. So you can imagine you're going there, right? Because you're looking for opportunity. You're a real American. You believe in the all. You believe you bought the whole hook, line, and sinker. You bought the whole story. Mm-hmm. Going to California, you're going to find some gold. Uh, someone there, of course, is willing to sell you everything you need for your journey, right? Yeah. Your wagon, your rifle, your bullets. Who knows? Maybe a teenage bride yeah. in dark <laughs> days. Um, probably edit that out. Um, point is, this industry, the westward mobility colonization industry, that guy can only stay in business supposing that it isn't finished, right? And people keep coming. Yeah. If ever it should be finished and fulfilled and the new land be completely settled and populated and everyone gets out there, he'll be out of business. So what's his interest? Keeping the expansion going. Yeah. He doesn't ever want it to be done. I feel like that's the PMC, and this isn't funny. That's the PMC's position in the left. <laughs> They're not going to end on a happy note. That's the PMC's position in the left. Like, yeah. they don't want, this is a process. It's not yeah. an activity. Yeah. The difference between a process and activity, process, like you're building a house, as soon as the house is done, the process vanishes. Well, right. I mean, think about all the PMC jobs in a true sort of working class revolution, realignment of classes. A lot of PMC jobs will no longer carry the prestige and pay grade that they have, right? right? You're because no longer going to be uh, the cool guy on the block for having the job that you have mm-hmm. if things actually go the way that a mm-hmm. sort of working class, uh, a true In sort the of long term, class, right? Exactly. The short term interest, one thing. Medium term interest, another. Long term interest, another. Well, and this is why you know this is why I think a lot of the PMC quote unquote PMC left supported Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders, right? I mean. Of course, some PMC people did support Bernie Sanders, but a lot of people liked Elizabeth Warren's approach because guess what? Who's in charge of managing the revolution? It's Ooh. those people, right? Mm-hmm. No, 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 don't do it this way. We have to do it this way. <laughs> well, even a lot of people who voted <laughs> I mean, for Bernie Sanders, and I was one of them. Of course. Um, they don't actually want things to get fundamentally changed. And I think- um, Yeah, they want social democracy as opposed to something else. Mm-hmm. You know? But on that point, um, architects will always be cool. <laughs> Especially in socialism, because we're going to need you to build some big ass statues. Right. So I'm safe. So big, a lot um, of public housing is what we're going to need. So <laughs> PMC, whatever, tear each other apart because I'm cool. <laughs> but yeah, that's an important point. Um, if you want to perpetuate the struggle, then you're actually not fighting the struggle. Yeah. Right. You're too That's invested right. in the process. You don't want the result. Yeah. But what does that say about the people who are fighting the perpetuators of the struggle? Does that make them valid? Well, that's the problem. You get yeah. these piggyback parasite, but you got fleas have fleas. You know, you can get people yeah. who make a career by criticizing the right the the mm. PMC. I mean, yeah. I'm not 
throwing mm. stones, calling any names, casting any whatever. But I mean, that's definite danger. Like, we shouldn't lose sight of the goal. Right. They can get to, you know, lose the forest for the trees sort of a situation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So next time we're going to pick up where we should have gone, where we should have gotten to. We talk about the antinomy of the left and some socialist horror stories. Yeah. And, and conflict. You never made it to conflict. Not that's really. true. That's true. Favorite part. Because that's where the socialist horror stories come from. Yeah. The anti confrontation. That's where my. The conflict with conflict. The conflict with conflict. Yeah. Right, that's the negation of negation. All right. All right. Peace. See ya. See ya.